Good morning. It's really good to see you. I'm glad you're here. We are beginning a new series today. Focus on the screen. Good luck. Uh, We're beginning a new series called Distorted. We're going to be in this for four weeks. We're going to be taking a look at some commonly distorted truths. There are lines of text in the Bible, and I look at the Bible as a lens through which we can see a world we wouldn't see otherwise, kind of like when you look through a microscope, you can actually see germs. Without a microscope, you can't see germs. When you look through a telescope, you can see the detail of what before was just a pinpoint of light, or not even a pinpoint of light, by looking through a lens. We're going to be looking through the lens of Scripture to see the supernatural and to see that their God is a reality, but a lot of us have trouble with that idea because of distortions of the truths that we're looking at. So we're looking at commonly distorted verses. I've picked out four of them that we're going to be looking at together. So week one, the distorted phrase that people jump on and struggle with is ask anything. It's about prayer. How many of us have prayed? And the prayer that we prayed did not come with an answer that we felt should have been the answer. And so we struggle a bit, and we maybe feel hurt by this, and we wonder what is going on and why didn't God deliver. Our focus today reads this way. Our prayers are not always answered in the ways we think they should be. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that's a statement that most of us agree with already. Our prayers are not always answered in the ways we think they should be. I mean, that's one that I think believers feel the impact of. Yep, I've prayed, and I thought it should be answered this way, and it didn't come that way, and maybe we're still struggling with that. Why is it that God didn't answer that prayer the way that I expected that he would? And we struggle maybe even to wonder, is it me? Is it God? Is it this verse that says, is that wrong? Did, did Jesus not say I could pray anything in his name? And what's the deal? How come it didn't come through? And we struggle with that. So if you've struggled with that, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Believers, welcome. Even believers have struggled with that. Maybe because we're believers, we struggle with it and wonder what's going on. Is it me? Skeptics, glad you're here today. (laughs) Welcome. I'm hoping that this will be a help to you as you're just wrestling through with, well, I prayed this and God didn't answer, so either there's not a God or he doesn't care or whatever, and you just, I mean, that's part of the sticking point. Welcome, I'm glad you're here today. The rest of you, you don't even know why you're here, welcome. You know, maybe somebody asked you to come, you thought, I'll give it a give it a try, and now you're thinking, wow, can this guy really talk about this, and will it work for, man, I'm I'm curious, welcome. I'm hoping that today, in this nitty-gritty topic about why prayer isn't answered the way we always expect, will be helpful to you. Now, just in case you're still not really ready to look into this, we're going to see this from the standpoint of really a painful situation. I read about a lament. A lament is 
actually an anguished prayer where you actually say things that are sorrowful, angry, frustrated things. You just say them right out before God, a lament. And Daniel, I forget his last name, on the screen is the first portion of a quote of Daniel McConchy. that's it. Daniel McConchy of Vernon Hills, Illinois, writes out a long lament. And I put, took little excerpts of it because I want you to know a little bit about Daniel. Daniel is a victim of a hit and run accident that left him a paraplegic. So it's evident from his lament that he believes in God, but it's evident from his lament that he's struggling, struggling, struggling because he's praying and the prayers that he's prayed are not being answered the way he believes they should be answered. How long, how long must I wait here in the middle between healing and hell, between heaven and horror? I'm unable to move, unable to see, lost in eternal destruction. I picked out another refrain of his that reads this way. If you'll put it up, the second one. Oh Lord, my God, why do you wait to show up? I cried out to you when trouble struck. I asked for your restoration. I know that you heard me. I know that you answered, yet nothing, nothing of meaning happens again today. Perhaps some of the hardest struggles are when we're praying something that we think are significant prayers that God would receive glory if he'd just answer and we're left with silence without an answer. Now, I want you to put yourself into his wheelchair a moment, feel some of these feelings and thoughts, and we're gonna look at the key verse, which is a lens through which we see a truth behind the veil, some supernatural things, and yet this lens is the stumbling block for so many. It's a stumbling block. I want you to feel what Daniel feels when he would read John 14, 14. These are Jesus' words. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So you're a paraplegic. You're praying that God would heal you. You pray things like you've raised the dead, you've caused other miracles to take place. I've heard about miracles right in this time and age. And so and so there's a miracle, and so and so there's a miracle. And I've seen or heard about these. What about me? I'm praying that you will bring feeling back to my toes. I'm praying that you'll give me strength again so that I can walk. I'm praying that you will give meaning to my life. I'm in this horrible darkness. What do you feel? Praying such a prayer. And you have one more day of silence. One more day of mundane nothingness, as far as you can tell, with the answer. you're thinking, how is he gonna dig himself out of this hole? Well, isn't that a hole we've all been in? So welcome believer, welcome skeptic, welcome those of you who don't even know why you're here. Let's find out what Jesus is saying when he's saying this because that distortion 
that comes through this lens causes us to go, is there a God? Maybe he doesn't exist. Does Jesus really know what he's talking about? Maybe he was wrong, and we struggle in that way. Now, just so we're not left there, I am amazed that, first of all, God allows us to speak a prayer of lament. In fact, encourages us to speak a prayer of lament. Maybe you thought, you know, is it okay to talk to God like this? Not only is it okay, it's recorded in scripture. There are many psalms of lament where the psalmist is just agonizing over questions just like this and spewing out frustration and wondering what God is gonna do and asking how long. And often, just that interaction where you're just being honest with God. And if he gives you permission to be honest, hey, take him up on it. Guess what? He already knows you're angry. He already knows you're frustrated. He already knows that you don't get it. Talk to him about it. He gives you permission and urges you to do so. And if you go to him, he may help you. Here's how Daniel finished his lament. And it was a much longer one than I'm sharing the pieces of. But one day, by his promise, I will stand. Restored in his message of hope. Restored as his message of hope is fulfilled. The Lord will turn this horror into a fading dream and I will honor his name forever. One thing I see in Daniel is even though he's struggling, even though he doesn't quite know what the answer is, even though he's frustrated, he's still hanging on with faith and coming through stronger for it, writing about hanging on to God through this thing that he's going through. Now, I need a timeout, not because I need to go to the restroom. I need a timeout because this is like heavy, heavy, heavy. So I want to just lighten it down a little bit before we continue into this message. Um, a group of, uh, some of us from the church went to a conference Thursday and Friday. We went in multiple vehicles. A number of us went in the church shuttle. I was one of those that went in the church shuttle. I went up to Flagstaff for the conference and back again on Thursday, up to Flagstaff again on Friday and back again on Friday. And I want to tell you, I sat in the worst seat. <laughs> I thought it was going to be the best seat. I'm pretty convinced it was the worst seat. I decided to sit in the front seat right behind the driver. And I didn't even know it was the worst seat until the second day on the last trip. Here's what happened. I sat there, and we drove up and drove back. And it was messing with me the whole time, and I didn't know it. And then on the way back, finally it hit me why I was so bothered. I was sitting in the front seat, and right kind of upper, you know, two o'clock from the driver's head is this convex mirror, which is like a bubble mirror, right? a convex mirror, and I'm front and center of this convex mirror, and I look totally like Humpty Dumpty <laughs> the entire time. I'm leaning back in my seat, and it's like Humpty Dumpty's in that mirror. And, and if you're not real familiar with Humpty Dumpty, maybe you're familiar with a, a tick that's eaten too much. It's like you can't even see the head. You know, just a couple of little limbs off this bulbous body sitting in this convex mirror. I didn't even realize how 
bad that was affecting me. I, I was like putting on clothes for the Friday meeting and everything I looked at, it's like, ah, oh, this will make me look fat. Ah, oh, this will make me look fat. This will make me look really bad. I wanna, I wanna, and I didn't even recognize until the ride home, this mirror was distorted because my own view of me is already distorted. And the mirror was not helping. Okay? And then on the way home, it's like, oh, wait a minute. This is a convex mirror, and I'm dead center in the middle of it. Everybody else looks normal, because they're like small and distant and tiny. And I'm blah, right? It's like, okay, okay. So if we can get the distortion to go away and see the lens through truth, now it's like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought. That's what I want for all of us, okay? Here we go. Now, we're going to be looking at that John 14, 14 verse, and what we're going to do is take it through a simplified Bible interpretation methodology that I think comes from Jesus, okay? And so here it is. I'm going to have you fill in all the big blanks first, and then we'll go through the little blanks as we go. Here's the big blanks. If you want to interpret the lens correctly without a distortion. If you want to see the line that helps us to see truth, a truth that we wouldn't get otherwise, without it distorting, you need to understand these three things. Number one, understand the context. Write that down so you have less to write later. Interpret the Bible with the Bible and apply what you learn. We're going to be taking this verse and the four verses that I've chosen for all four weeks through this simplified interpretation of Bible truths. Now, some of you, if you're skeptics and you've been kind of digging in your heels a little bit and eh, they talk too much about the Bible, I'm really not into the Bible, I don't believe the Bible, welcome, I'm glad you're here. I'm hoping that as we go, you'll continue to look at it and go, you know what, I'm going to look at it again. I'm hoping that's you. Those are, some of us have come to look at the Bible as instructions for life and really, really helpful, and we're gonna go, wow, it's amazing how it all fits together. We're gonna see some more of that. Those of you who didn't even know why you came, um, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, and if you don't have the Bible, we wanna give it to you as a gift. We're gonna be on page 752, and we're gonna actually gonna look from the big picture and be all over the place, but at least you'll know where to start um, and take it home. You might wanna, you're thinking, no way, I don't. Maybe by the end, you might actually go, you know what, I might look at that, okay? So understand the context. By that, what I mean is, there's a line of scripture that we just looked at. Jesus says, you can pray anything in my name and I will do it, okay? There's the line. And we're going, yeah, I tried that, didn't work and we have a distorted view of that line. Now we're gonna back up and say, what did he mean by that? We're gonna take a little bigger picture and see how that fits into this bigger picture, this bigger narrative, and we're gonna talk about that. Secondly, we're gonna interpret the Bible with the Bible. You're going, yeah, well, that's not all that helpful. The Bible is already circular, circular logic, and I'm taking the Bible and interpreting the Bible by the Bible. We're actually just doing what Jesus did. Jesus believed that the Bible held together. His Bible was the Jewish Bible. It took 1,500 years to put together. It was put together, written by all these different writers, 30 writers or so, and there, there's these different writers are writing about the events that God did in their history, and Jesus looked at the entire thing together and saw a cohesive whole. The reason that's so important is there was a point in Jesus' life when he was 
being, entering into a battle. I don't know what that looked like and felt like for him subjectively, but it's described as the devil coming at him and tempting him with Bible verses. Bible verses were brought before Jesus in a distorted way, and the way Jesus fought the distortion, blew the distorted image away into clarity was he grabbed other pieces of the Bible and quoted the Bible correctly and corrected the distortion. We're gonna do the same thing with this verse. We're gonna look at other pieces of the Bible and interpret the Bible by the Bible, and then the distortion goes away. And that's how Jesus handled a distorted quoted scripture, which still comes at us today, and the devil will use these truths and distort them in a way to kind of get us off track, and we need to make sure that we understand how to view them correctly. And then we need to apply what we've learned. This thing is not a book to be studied merely academically. (laughs) It is a love letter from God himself. He used people to write it. It's supernatural, even though people wrote it, and the more you read it, the more you realize, whoa, There's no way all of this fits together the way it does if only people wrote it. And it's just rather remarkable. So we need to apply what we've learned. All right, we're gonna take John 14, 14 through this grid. The first point is context. Understand the context. So now I need to just kind of back up and say, who wrote John, the Gospel of John? We're looking at John 14, 14. This line is a recording statement of Jesus. Who wrote it? The answer is... You guys are so good. I'm not gonna ask you to ask them, answer the next one out loud because it's a little harder. Those of you who know, answer in your head. How many different pieces of the Bible did John write? Different works, okay? Some people only think of the Gospel of John. John wrote the Gospel of John. He was the youngest apostle and it was written late in the history of all the writings of the New Testament. Every book of the New Testament was written in the generation immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus. So right after this guy dies a crucified criminal's death, everybody's writing about him, and they're writing about how he raised from the dead. We saw it, we witnessed it, we saw him alive, we saw him killed, we saw him alive, and they're all writing about it. That's what the New Testament is about and what that means. John wrote about it in his gospel. He also writes about it in his letters. There's three little letters called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John towards the end of the New Testament. It's hard to find because they're like real short, okay? And then there's one more book that John wrote. That one's a little harder to figure out because, you know, the other one's easy. John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Wow, those are pretty easy. Who wrote those? John. The last one is Revelation. The last book of the New Testament is written by John. Some people say stuff like, the Gospel of John was written 300, 400 AD, long after Jesus, and I say, whoa, whoa, that's quite a spin. The Rylands fragment is a little uh, archeological fragment that is dated, I think 40. John wrote about 90 to 100 AD as an old man. It is, the span is real short from this little fragment to the date of his writing. There's no 300, 400 AD written Gospel of John. We have a fragment immediately after that's old already. This was written by John, okay? Now, you may want to argue that. I just want to set it there and move on. Now, as we jump into the context, you need to understand that lines of scripture are not just 
Uh, lines all by themselves. Lines follow lines. Sentences follow sentences. They fit with a paragraph which has got a point, which fits in a, ch- in a longer narrative which has a point. So why is John writing the Gospel of John? He actually tells us. Towards the end of his Gospel, here's what he tells us in John, uh, we're, there you are, 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Major theme of John's gospel. He tells us why he's writing. He's got that theme at the beginning, throughout, and at the end. Here's why I'm writing. I am totally convinced he is not just a man. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, who rose from the dead. You can have life, and he'll give it to you. That's why I'm writing. Okay, so that's context. Now, in chapter 14, as we're still getting a context, the background around the statement, you understand that in chapter 14, this is the night before Jesus is crucified. Jesus is telling his disciples everything they need to know. They still don't get what's going on, but he's freaking them out. He's saying things like, I'm going away. He's already said things that they didn't get, like, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be crucified, on the third day I'm gonna rise. They're going, what does this parable mean? Because they, they, they did not believe in a crucified Messiah, and they were convinced he was the Messiah. He was the ruling king who was going to set an army into motion. They had the wrong ideas. Their ideas were already distorted by what they were expecting. Okay? But Jesus is setting things straight. He says, I'm going away. But this is going to be better for you that I am going away. Because if I go away, then I can send you the Holy Spirit. And if I send you the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to do greater stuff. You've seen the great works that I've done. You're going to be able to do greater stuff than even I've been able to do. And so that's what we read as we back up from the line that's the line we're focusing on. Let's read it together. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Hoo-hoo. Wow. This is a big whoever. Whoever. It includes us. If we believe in him, Jesus says, we can do works that are greater than he did. Nah. Not me. We, we, we kind of balk at that, but he's saying it to his disciples. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And he gives a reason. Because I'm going to the Father, this can happen. We kind of go, what? It works like this. The Spirit of God dwelt within Jesus' body Jesus gave his body up to pay for our sins. Because he paid for our sins, we can be washed clean. Now the Spirit of God can enter into our body. He says, I, if I go away, if I go away, it's better for you because now I can send my Spirit. And my Spirit, which has enabled my body on earth to do this stuff, is now going to be in your body. And together, you will be able to do greater things than you've seen me do as an individual. Do you believe that? That's what he's saying. And then he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for, say it, in my name, and I will do it. And this is where we trip up. We read those whatever and anything, and what we do is we read and we read, and it's like we're going through this thing, and we read this verse, it's like, Bam! Whoa! This is like a really good one. And then we pray, whatever, and anything, 
and expect that this whatever prayer and this anything prayer is gonna produce because it says it right here, right? But here's the deal. Here's what we fail to look at because there are qualifiers here. I will do whatever you ask, say it, in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything, say it. All right, so you need to get what this is. Here's Jesus. He raises a people that believes in him, and he believes in them. And he writes out a blank check. Okay, here's a blank check. Here you go. I've signed it. Write whatever and anything in my name on that check, and I will do it. You ever had a boss that do that? I did. I had a boss that would give me a blank check. He'd send me down a truck and go load up the truck with the stuff that is in his name and bring it home. You know what would have happened if I would have loaded up that truck with stuff in my name? If I would have loaded it up with stuff that wasn't his desire, his will, in his name, and loaded up with the stuff that I want because you said anything. Wait, context is really, really important. If you're totally out of context here, you're not doing anything in his name, it's for you for your namesake, for your kingdom. The whole context here is you're gonna be able to do greater things than I did. What things? Things in the kingdom. If you're praying stuff outside of the kingdom, in other words, not your kingdom, but my kingdom, I mean, you say, you've heard stuff like this. Now, what if? What if your pastor started praying, you know what, God, I think it'd be really, really cool. Your name would be totally honored if I began to pray for a Ferrari and I was the pastor who was given a Ferrari. Given, totally given. It's now, keys are mine. I am the fastest pastor in town, all to your glory. And you know what? I have a need for speed. (laughs) And, And yet, in whose name is it, and for whose namesake is it, does such a prayer get prayed? Does it have anything to do with his kingdom? Mm, something's off there. To your honor, to your glory. You know, they're all, you're gonna hear that kind of thing in the church frequently. Some of the church puts a label on it called the prosperity gospel. You know, just uh, ask and you receive. Just blab it and grab it. You know? <laughs> as long as you believe, right? And there's a whole segment that believes that's part of the gospel. I'm telling you, it's not looking at context. It's not looking at what in his name means and what is it for, okay? Point number two, interpret the Bible with the Bible. So we're gonna take a look at the same verse, add Bible verses to it because all of the Bible should fit together as a cohesive truth, not contradicting itself. That's Jesus' view, It's my view too. And so we need to take a look at that. A, on your outline, your relationships matter. Your relationships matter. Jot that down and we'll take a look at a verse that sounds very much like John 14, 14. It reads this way. In Mark 11, 24 through 25, we read, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the one we just looked at? But look at the context here. The thing he says immediately after that, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. 
Why is that stated right after pray anything? Because one of the problems with the power of the kingdom that comes through the Holy Spirit is that we can short circuit that power and put a block in what God is trying to do. And when we are bitter inside and we refuse to forgive somebody, God says, no, wait a minute, I love that person just the way I loved you. My dying on the cross for that person is for them just like my dying on the cross was for you. I forgave them and I forgave you and I forgave you of all your sins. Why are you bitter about that person's sin? And if you refuse to forgive that person, the power which I want to have operate through you, the love of the kingdom, the forgiveness of the kingdom, the grace of the kingdom that is empowered through your kingdom-minded prayer is cut off by your bitter heart. Relationships matter. Apparently, sometimes we pray and nothing happens because we have bitterness in our heart horizontally that cuts off the vertical power connection. Ooh. Wow. Just in case that's not enough, Peter also says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate to considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, women, don't get mad at me for that. Um, some of you might be able to beat your husband in arm wrestling, I know. You could take him on. And you say, come on, come on. That's really sexist. I can take him on. I can win. I can beat him up, okay? All right, assuming that's true. Let's just look at this the way that God is asking us to look at it. If I look at my wife as a weaker partner, it's not really the weakness so much that is the issue. He has created her with an intricacy and a delicateness that needs to be appreciated and cherished. It's a little bit like the difference between the way I treat my carpenter's hammer and my cherished camera. My cherished camera comes with all the intricacies of the lenses and the mechanisms and the focus structures and the things that are so intricate. There's a weakness in that camera. I can't just take it and sling it by the thing and throw it in the drawer like I can my hammer. Roll, okay? I disrespect my wife if I treat her like the hammer or the anvil and I'm the hammer and treat her as if, you know, whatever, you're just as strong as me, we can take it, let's go head to head, come on. No, treat her as a, this important, cherished person in your life. And then he says, why? This can't be in the Bible, really. Come on. <laughs> Respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. No, 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 no. Let's use a highlighter. Can't really be there, right? You mean my prayers are not answered because I'm not treating her correctly? Let me interpret that for you real quickly. Yep. <laughs> That's what that means. And when we go to counseling, because we're all tangled up, and, and it actually works both ways, we're all tangled up, and we go to counseling, and the counselor says, what's the problem with your marriage? And, and he says, she, and she does this, and she does this, and she does this. 
Really? Okay, let me hear from you. What's the problem in your marriage? Well, he, he does this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and it's just not going to work. Both parties, here's their condition. It's called self-righteousness. I'm right, she's wrong, that's my, my, my viewpoint. And I'm viewing the whole thing from self-righteousness and a self-righteous way of approaching relationships. I'm right, they're wrong, cuts off prayer. Power gone. Because you're self-righteous. It's all their fault. I didn't like that verse. Let's go to point B. <laughs> Your motives matter. Your motives matter. James says this. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask, say it now, with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Oh, Ferrari, out. Damn it. Maybe if we can fit it into the kingdom purpose some way. Now we're just angling to fit it into the motives. Hmm. Okay? Proverbs says, a person's ways seem pure to them. What? What? It would be great. I mean, just think. I mean, I prayed and it came and we tell the story. Ah, 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 ah. God says, really? You've been praying about the kingdom of you and the kingdom of you and the kingdom of you. It doesn't really look like Jesus. It's not in my name. That's in your name. I can see right through it. Motives matter. See, your faith matters. Your faith matters, James says in James 1, 6 through 7. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. There's a lot of verses about this. The James one actually addresses something more than just generic prayer. It's talking about asking for wisdom. We ask for wisdom because we can't figure our stuff out and we ask for wisdom. He actually leads us in the right direction and we go, nah. Kind of like we did that other verse. They can't really mean that. Okay? So our faith matters. Now, let's just keep moving on. Point D, God's will matters. God's will matters matters. We're looking at 1 John 5. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He says something very similar, but it's very instructive because although it's similar, it's a different phrase and helps us understand his phrases, his categories. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything, remember that word? Same as before, but now he qualifies a different way. According to his will, he hears us. So he's now actually giving us a little interpretive tool that helps us understand, oh, when we pray for anything in his name, it means anything according to his will. Jesus taught us this when he taught us the disciples. This is what a prayer looks like according to my teaching. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're not praying for my kingdom get bigger, my kingdom get better, my kingdom get wonderful. I do this and you do this too. We read scripture, the scripture pops because of our circumstance. We go, whoa, this is for me. And now we're reading into the scripture a distorted view of that 
scripture, this is now, the theologians call this eisegesis, because we're reading into it rather than exegesis, pulling out of it. We read into it what it means for me. And here's what we've done. We've made the Bible about me. And we've taken center stage about this statement. And the stage is about Jesus. Whatever you ask, anything you ask, in my name, to my glory, for my kingdom, if you're doing these greater works, you're involved with me. And if you, you participate in this thing, let's do this together. As we're doing this thing, you ask this, I will do it. Because it's all about not you. Wow. So we want to apply that. Point number three, you've already written it down. Apply what you learn. I'm going to finish with a story that comes from Francis Chan's book, Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. It's a story about a friend of his named Dave Phillips. He writes, years ago, Dave Phillips and his wife, Lynn, had a talk about the callings they felt God was stirring in them. As they discussed what they were most passionate about, they agreed that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of the list. The thought of starting a relief agency was considered, but Dave's response was, but that would mean I would have to talk in front of people. By nature, Dave is a very quiet, behind-the-scenes guy. But after much prayer, Dave set aside his fears, and he and Lynn started Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage six weeks after CHF was launched in January of 1992. He received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment center in Honduras asking if there was any way he could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die without it. Dave wrote down the name of the drug, told the director that he had no idea how to get this type of drug. They then prayed over the phone and asked God to provide. As Dave hung up the phone, before he even let go of the receiver, remember that, phones with receivers? (laughs) The phone rang again. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of that exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of this drug, but they told him they would airlift it to any place in the world. Dave would later learn that the company was one of the only two that manufactured this particular drug in the United States. Within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and, so, and to 20 other locations as well. It was then he believed firmly that God was at work, validating his calling to this ministry. You think? (laughs) Year after year, God continues to provide supernaturally. Today, they have distributed more than $950 million in food and other relief to more than 10 million kids in 70 countries and 32 states. Children's Hunger Fund has distributed more than 150 million pounds of food and 110 million toys. People... Don't miss the good news of Jesus' promise. He's saying, if you ask for anything in my name, I'd love to do it. 
but we're so busy asking for things in our name, for my kingdom, for my little life, for my well-being, for my health, and for my safety, for my goodness, for my... We're not doing the greater works that Jesus is talking about. We haven't partnered with him yet. He has opened this partnership up to us, not just Dave. Our life was never meant to be this mundane loop where we go to work to earn money to eat some food so we can be strong enough to go back to work to earn some money to eat some food to go back to work to eat some money to earn... Really? And then die. Thank you. (laughs) Jesus said, no. There's a grander vision for you. And he wants you to pray these big prayers with him. God, you've kind of put this on my heart. Pray a big prayer. Bam! Whoa! That was one you wanted me to pray. And then you take another step. Bam! Wow! This now is electrifyingly exciting because you're in the kingdom taking steps with Jesus. It's like the Holy Spirit is real. God is real. Whoa! He's answering my prayers. Listen, that's what we need. What would happen if every one of us began to pray in his name? for what he wanted. We stopped digging in our heels and we just said, yes, God, I will follow you. Would you pray with me? God, we are struggling because our tendency is to put ourselves at the center of our world. We tend to want to just go for the easy, the comfortable, the immediate, and you're calling us to follow you. We're all at different places. We have something to leave behind. Some people are here and they're confused because they're hearing it and they're afraid to take a step. We ask you to help us to face that fear, turn away from self-centered living, and step towards you. Lord, it just starts with, I'm sorry, forgive me. I've been about me. Open my eyes. You've given me a view that's beautiful. Help me to love. Help me to follow you. Help me to see you. I want to read more. I want to know more. I want to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.